you will, go ahead and take your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3. While you're turning, uh, let me tell you about our children's ministry. Yesterday, uh, Charlie and Meredith braved the uh, uh, vast waters of 285 and took nine boys to Canton, Georgia, to participate in Georgia Baptist Children's Missions Day. Uh, It was an awesome opportunity where our second, third, fourth, fifth graders learned to share their faith. They were equipped with how to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another. Hey, bud. Thanks. Thank you, buddy. Have fun in children's church. But it was a great opportunity. Uh, It was a great opportunity that our kids took. I don't know how Braden knew I needed a cup of coffee this morning, but those of you that know me well know I love coffee. Miss Charlene Amos gave me this coffee mug last year. It says, life is better in flip-flops because if you show up here from about the middle of uh, end of March till probably the middle of October during the week, I'm probably going to be in a pair of flip-flops. I mean, that's just, I hate wearing socks and shoes, but man, coffee is good, right? You know what's great about coffee? When it's nice and hot. When, 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 it's, when it's hot. Now, I know there's a market out there for iced coffee. That's kind of an, an acquired taste. So you can go and actually, actually, here's the funny thing. If you go to Starbucks and order an iced coffee, they're going to charge you 50 cents more for the same coffee. It's the exact same coffee that they put in the cup. They just put ice over the top of it. They charge you 50 cents more for that cup. But... Man, a good hot cup of coffee is so good, right? You know what they don't sell? Room temperature coffee. There is not a market for room temperature coffee. They sell it iced. You can get your refrigerated coffee beverage, but... Most of the time, it's nice and hot. Now, now I have a little Keurig machine in my office, one of those single cup coffee makers. And, and the good thing about that is it gives me this nice hot cup of coffee on demand. And sometimes I've got to let it cool off just a little bit in order to be able to drink it. But man, when it's nice and hot, it's great. Man, coffee is good. I'm a, I might come back to this here in just a minute. But here we are in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to talk about the church in Laodicea. We're going to talk about this church that's got some problems. Problems that they might not even realize are problems. But here's what Jesus says to them, starting in verse 14 of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds. Now, now we've heard that every week as we've walked through these seven churches. I know your deeds. Now, we've got to keep in mind that seven times now we've heard Jesus tell the church, I know your deeds. First Baptist, Jesus knows our deeds. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you were lukewarm and you were neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have no need of anything. And you yourself do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he will dine with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would light a fire. That you would light a fire in our hearts this morning. A fire of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That above everything else, we would make much of Christ in all things. That above everything that we could fathom, everything that we could dream of, everything that we could plan for ourselves, that we would place that behind what you have called us to do as people in the workplace, people in, uh, people in school, people in, in, in doctor's offices, people in community, people right here in Fairburn with an opportunity to share what you have done for us. Lord, stoke the fire. Make it rage within us so that we could see a community, that we could see a city. Lord God, that you would even grant us the grace to see a nation on its knees, worshiping you, the true Savior, the true King. So Lord, we ask that you just simply make us faithful. Faithful to what you've called us to be. Nothing more, nothing less. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Laodicea. My heart breaks for this church. And the reason my heart breaks for this church is because I see too much of the American church in Laodicea. I see too much of what has crept in and what has overshadowed the gospel taking place among our congregations all over the nation. I follow and I look at things going on in Twitter and I'm just going to bring it home to Southern Baptist for a minute because that's us. That's who we are. And, and we have a long history of Southern Baptist of being on the forefront of missions, of sending people across the world, across our nation to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But if we start looking at what's going on in the nitty gritty of what's going on under the surface and what's happening in the majority of our 51,000 churches, what we find is too much of the church in Laodicea and not enough of the church in Philadelphia, not enough of the church church in Smyrna, not even enough of the church in Ephesus where Jesus could just say, I love what I see going on, keep loving me and hold on when it gets tough. 
But we get to Laodicea and we see this church that Jesus, wow, as bad as it was in Thyatira, as bad as it was in Pergamum, Jesus at least said, hey, you've got some good stuff going on. There is nothing that Jesus lauds in the church in Laodicea. And as a pastor, I stop and I say, if Jesus showed up at my church, would he give us some, give us some street cred for some things we're doing? Or is he going to lay into us like this? See, Jesus is this faithful and true witness. And so as we start unpeeling the layers, we're going to look and find out what happened to the church. And I believe this is a question we as a civilization have to ask today. What happened to the church? When you watch presidential debates, when you watch what goes on in gubernatorial debates, when you start looking at what's being displayed on the radio, what's being played for us in TV, and what's being shown in movies, we start asking ourselves the question, well, what happened to society? I think what happened to society is the wrong question to ask. We know what happened to society. They were dead in their trespasses and transgressions and sins, just like us. The bigger question that we have to ask is what happened to the church? See, Washington is not the problem. Hollywood is not the problem. The problem is a weak, divided church of schismed Christians. So what happened to the church? Jesus comes to them and says, to the church in Laodicea, to the pastor of that church, to the messenger of that church, I want you to write these words. I am the faithful and true witness. Ooh, we got to have some truth, right? And who better to look to for truth than Christ Jesus? The Savior, the Son of God, the one who will not steer us wrong, the one who will call it like it is, even if we don't like the call. He says, I'm the beginning of creation. Oh, Y'all know, y'all heard me quote this verse so many times. One of my favorite verses in all scripture, John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and by the word were all things made that have been made. Or as Paul says in Colossians chapter one, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the, uh, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So what Jesus is describing here is I can see your beginning from your end. I see everything that's happened in time. And so I can look with clarity and tell you what's going on. It's kind of like modern medicine, right? I'm glad that we are not operating today on the medical technology of 1775. In 1775, if you go to the doctor and you've got a little problem, a little pain over here in your stomach, what they're probably going to say is, well, you know, drink this oil or take this, or let's just cut you open and see what's going on. Now... They're going to charge you a lot of money for it and your insurance carrier or health care provider or whatever you've got for health care. They're going to charge them a whole lot of money for it, but they're going to be able to see inside, right? They're going to say, man, we're going to put you in this MRI machine, this magnetic resonance imaging machine. It's going to get in there. It's going to make a bunch of bumping noises and it's going to spin. They're going to make sure you don't have any metal in your body or maybe they forgot to ask you about that. You find yourself attached to the machine now. I don't know what's going on, but they're doing this magnetic because they're looking at what's going on inside. 
Or they say, you know, we need to do a different kind of scan. We need to do a, a CAT scan or a CT scan. And they have all of these different ways to image what's on the inside. So when they diagnose, it's a lot more accurate because they can see what's behind the skin, right? If I go to the doctor and say, I've got a pain right here. And he says, where is it? And I say, well, it's down deep inside up under here under the ribs. Man, that could be my liver. That could be my appendix. That could be a kidney back in there. I can, there's all kinds of things. But he says, ah, you just got a little rash on your skin. Just put a little ointment on there because that's all I can see is the rash. Too often we address church that way. There's something deep and we've got to go to the one who can see behind everything. And so Jesus says, you want to know what happened to your church? Let's talk about it. So I'm doing something this morning I don't always do. I'm giving you some words that start with the same letter, okay? So we got four D's this morning that are going to happen to this church in Laodicea. You'll see there that all of them are something about the church has lost something. And the first thing Jesus says to them is that the church lost its definition. Notice with me that Jesus comes to them and says, I know your deeds. I see what's going on because I can see all time as though there was no time. I am from the beginning of creation. He is using huge language about himself because he is reminding where us where the authority and the ability to see and diagnose is coming from his position as the eternal son of God. I see your deeds. You're not hot. And you're not cold. See, what the church was supposed to have was something that set them apart. See, the word church literally means those who were called out. The called out ones. That's the Greek word ecclesia. We talk about ecclesiology. We talk about the study of the church. And, 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 and what Jesus says is you were supposed to be called out. There was something to be that defined you that was outside of the norm. But he says... But I don't see it. You're not hot and, and you're not cold. You're lukewarm. And see, in Laodicea, there was something going on with the water. They kind of had a tepid water in Laodicea. See, Laodicea was between a couple of other cities where you could either get really, really cold spring water or you could get some boiling hot water from some sulfur springs that were there in the area. But what happened in Laodicea, it was they had to pump in the water. They had this awesome system of aqueducts that brought the water in so that it was actually drinkable because what was happening in Laodicea was the water was a lukewarm temperature and it kind of had a little bit of a stench to it makes me think of beach water you ever go to the beach and you drink the water and you're like I'm about to go buy some bottles yeah it was gross nobody wanted to drink it as a matter of fact what would happen if you did drink the water that was naturally from Laodicea is it would induce vomiting and Jesus says your condition where you are you have lost your definition, and so because of that, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'm trying to grow. I know we're going to eat lunch here in a little bit, and everybody's kind of grossed out now. So, you know, hey, you're welcome. I saved you some money, all right? You're not going to go blow your budget at the restaurant this afternoon. He says to them, You have lost your definition. What has defined you and made you distinctly mine is missing. But here's the more disturbing thing that Jesus says to them. He says, I would rather that you would be hot or cold. 
Doesn't that sound like an odd thing that Jesus would say? I wish that you would be hot or I wish that you would be cold. Because what Jesus is describing is this, this, this kind of a amphibious nature of the church to where it blends in and out of culture in such a way that it's not distinctly Christian. He said, I would rather you just outright oppose me. I would rather that your heart be cold to me. Why would Jesus say that? Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? I'm not here for the religious people. I'm here for the lost. Just like the doctor is for those who are sick, but not those who think they are well, so have I come because it is those that know they are unrighteous that can see the repentance that is offered. He said, I would rather you be so cold that my gospel could come in and stoke a fire, but you think you're okay. You've lost your definition. You're just going through the motions in such a way that nobody knows, are you of me or not? What's happened to the church? And we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, have we be, are we a catalyst for culture or are we a conduit for culture? See, the difference is a catalyst for culture sees culture as an opportunity to engage in missions and allow the gospel to be the change because the gospel has changed us. A conduit for culture says, you know what? We're gonna do it the way the world does. I'm not going to call out any churches by name. But you've seen it. We've got to make sure that we have the smoke and the lights. And we've got to make sure that we have that cool thing Garth Brooks uses to shoot the pastor out from under the stage. So he pops up there and he's ready to go. We've got to make sure that, that, that when, when, when we preach, when, when, when we're teaching, we're not calling out sin. We're not calling out that we're just talking about people and how much, how loved they are and keep everything positive. And we've got to keep everything on a good note because we don't want to offend anybody. Because after all, we're not supposed to be offensive. But the cross is offensive. The Bible teaches us that the cross is offensive because it is offends us to know that we have sinned, but it offends God more that we have sinned. So he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. What the world counts as foolishness is the greatest message of hope and peace. And here... Jesus says, there's nothing about what you're doing. I see your deeds. You could take church off the name of your gathering and nobody would know the difference. You, 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 could, take, you could take all the Bibles out of the pews because nothing about what you do concerns with the word of God. You've lost your definition. But they also lost its dependence, their dependence. This church lost its dependence. Notice what he goes on and says to them. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Because, verse 17, you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, probably one of the greatest threats to the church in America is affluence. 
because we want to look at things through the lens of numbers. As long as the budget's okay, as long as there are enough rear ends in the seats, as long as things look all right on paper, man, we're good. So we'll just maintain. And see, there are a lot of churches across our country. There are churches right here in our area that because they have been established there for a while, they're just operating on name. They're operating on the reputation that they've built. I'm not saying they don't have good things going on. I'm saying that they don't have to worry about whether they're going to make budget and be able to pay the staff or they're going to be able to do this mission trip. They're going to be able to send a group here or have the students go on a camp here. There are a lot of things that churches just say, well, you know what, because we're here, people know us and they show up and everything's just on autopilot and they forget to be on their face before the living God and asking and begging and pleading that God would continue to send his power because they think it all rests in the decision room and not in the prayer room. Right now, at this very minute, we've got a group of six people through that door right there that are praying for you, praying for me, praying for those songs that we sing, praying for Darius and our Hispanic ministry, praying for ministry after ministry. Our deacons are taking this. I, I put them up to it, but they are willingly and, jump, and, and lovingly jumping into this. And every Sunday, they're gonna be either in that room or another room around the corner where they can engage with the Lord God because we do nothing apart from him. Church, I want you to know that I can't stand here by myself. I have to have the hand of God. You can't sit there by yourself. You have to have the hand of God. This church said, look, I've made it. Man, I've got money. I've got clothes. I've got everything I need. And he says, but you can't even see how wretched and miserable you are. The day a church believes that they've made it on their own is the day the church starts to die. A church must have a definition, but a church must also be dependent because only through the hand of God will a church stay hot. But the church didn't just lose its dependence and its definition. The church lost its decency. Notice what happens here. He says, you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself so that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed. You remember the old story by Hans Christian Andersen, the emperor's new clothes? You might have read that years ago in elementary school. Let me give you a little quick synopsis. This emperor, man, he was all about fashion. He was all about the latest trends. He didn't really do a good job of evaluating those that were in leadership around him and his military. But man, he was always about, it was said of this emperor that you would find him more in the dressing room than in the boardroom because he was one that wanted to look like Dapper Dan everywhere that he went. Man, picture Don Johnson from Miami Vice, y'all. Here we go. He is ready to go. But because he was in an affluent nation and in an affluent kingdom, he always had people coming through. And one day a couple of swindlers came. 
They promised this emperor that they could make the finest clothing of the finest silk and that no one would be able to to really understand how well-dressed he was. And furthermore, they told him, but only those who were not worthy of their position will not be able to see the clothes that we make. So the emperor is kind of excited about this. He pays them up front and he buys, he, he gives them the money so they can buy the silk and the fabric and everything that they need to make his clothes. And, and he's a little nervous about going in there and seeing what's going on. So he sends one of the ministers, one of the servants of the community, one of his top officials to look. And what happens is that minister gets there and he looks and he sees that he can't tell what they're making. They've got, they've got spinning looms and they've got weaving machines that are there, but there's no fabric. They've pocketed the money. They're not making anything. But he doesn't want to think, the emperor to think that he's unworthy of his position, so he pretends, oh, how beautiful is this that you're making? Oh, how wonderful are these fabrics that you're weaving? And so they're like, yeah, it looks really great. They're kind of going along with it because they realize that he doesn't want to lose his position. And so they build this whole thing up and start talking to him and he's paying attention to every detail they say about the fabric so that he can go back to the emperor and describe it in great detail. Well, the emperor's excited. He's really excited. So he sends his top military official in to see it as well. He's bragging. He's like, look, at, look, this is what the minister told me about the fabric. Go and check it out for yourself. Well, the top military official gets there and he's seeing empty looms and seeing nothing, but he sees these guys going through motions and he doesn't want to be demoted from his position as a top military official because after all, the emperor had just heard from the minister of how wonderful this fabric was. So he starts talking, oh yes, I see the fine quality. The craftsmanship is beautiful. Oh, what lovely colors. And he's going on all the while thinking, I can't see it. I'm not worthy. Well, the emperor gets word that these artisans need more money to buy more fabric to put the final pieces. And so he sends more money to them and they stay up all night with candles burning in the tower where it looks like they're doing all the work. And finally the emperor goes to see his new clothes and he walks in and he's stunned because he sees nothing. But his minister and his top general have both described to him in detail the clothing and he doesn't want to be deposed as the emperor. So he starts talking about how wonderful these clothes look. And the artisans lay out for him and say, this is your coat and this is your sash and these are your trousers and start describing for him the beautiful detail of all their work and says, it's even lighter than a spider web. Let's get you dressed. Well, no one in the kingdom wants the emperor to think less of them. So as the king, as the emperor is parading through the kingdom in his underpants, they're all talking about how wonderfully dressed he is. Because no one wanted to be found unworthy until a child finally speaks up. He's not wearing any clothes. 
and the whole sham was unraveled, but the artisans were gone. Church, I am convinced that we have gone around with blinders on thinking that if we just add this, if we just do this, we will be good and we will be great and we've lost our decency. We're parading around in the nakedness of our shame instead of in the glory of Christ. We've made much of what the world says we should be and not enough about who Christ has made us to be. We've lost our decency. You've been to Walmart. You know what it's like. You see somebody like, they're out in public that way. Did their mama not tell them how to dress? Did their not mama not get them clothes to get dressed? What's the decency? You want to know why the world doesn't want to hear our message of hope and peace and what the gospel's all about? Because we've been parading around in our nakedness. Because we lost our decency. We didn't clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. We didn't clothe ourselves with the beauty of who he is. We clothed ourselves in what someone else thought that we should be and not what the gospel has made us to be. And the world has turned a deaf ear because we lost our decency. And this church ultimately has lost its discipline. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, the church, the ones that I love, those that I love, I reprove and I discipline. Man, we don't like that word. I just watched some of you. I said the word discipline and you kind of shudder because man, you're hearing the belt crack on your hind end. You're remembering that de detention seat that you sat in all through school. Man, you remember, you're thinking discipline in the negative. Discipline is not a negative thing. Discipline is a positive because discipline shows that someone loves and cares enough about you to seek better for you, to promote you to something greater, to push you towards what you can achieve. And Jesus says, this church has lost its discipline because they have lost what it means to follow me. Where do we get our discipline as a church? We get it from the word of God. We get it from what truth teaches us. And sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's great and sometimes we get to celebrate our kids learning how to share the gospel with one another. But sometimes discipline comes and it's a little bit harsh, right? Sometimes your parents disciplined you positively. Sometimes they disciplined you negatively. And I, as your pastor, want our church to be on the positive end of discipline where God is correcting and shifting and molding us in good ways and not coming down and saying, you know what, I'm gonna remove your lampstand, this, I'm done. This church had lost its definition. This church had lost its dependence. It had lost its discipline. It had lost its decency. And in losing its discipline, it lost everything that it needed to continue to function as a church. It's a shame when churches lose their discipline. Churches lose their discipline because individual members of the church see the church as optional, see the ministries of the church as optional, see what happens in the church as optional. And when we start seeing it as optional, we're demonstrating that we've lost our dependence on the life-giving spirit of God and what his word teaches us. So Jesus says, hey, I'm gonna offer you something. Repent and come back. Why? Because I love you. Be, because I love you. The ones I love, see, we've got to be worried, really worried, when we don't see the hand of God shaping and molding and disciplining us. That means he's given up. 
I tell my staff all the time, I'm going to push you. I'm going to continue pushing you. I, I want you to know that I'm going to push you because if I stop pushing you, I've given up on you. If I stop pushing you, I realize, okay, this is, this is all that I'm going to be able to get out of you. So, you know, we don't want that, right? Imagine with me, if you would, just for a second, just for a second, that your favorite sports team had a coach that was okay with mediocre. Oh, you can't shoot a basketball. That's okay. You can just pass instead. See, see, we want excellence. And how much more does God want excellence out of us? This is where discipline steps in to push us towards excellence. So if that's what's happened to the church, what do we do? What do we do now? Now, I want to be clear that I do not think that our church has lost its definition, lost its dependence, its decency, or, or lost its discipline. But there are warnings that are associated with it that we've got to heed and keep hearing so that we are mindful of what Christ is doing in our church and we can continue. And I think what we do now is to continue looking at what he has said. So he says there in verse 20, he says, "Those are, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You and I have to answer the door. We've got to, you don't like answering the door, I know. Most of you got those ring doorbells on your door, so you don't have to answer the door. You can see the video, see who's there, without having to do the whole thing of just going and peeking or pretending that you're not home. It's like telling the kids, shut up, shut up, be quiet. Get down, don't run to the door. I've told y'all before, a couple years ago, we were getting ready for Easter. We were canvassing some neighborhoods and everything. I rang a doorbell, and these kids came over, and they opened the blinds on the front door and stood there and looked at me, closed the blinds, and turned and walked off. And I could see their mom in the back. <laughs> you don't like answering the door. If, if somebody's not expected, you don't want them there. You're, you're not going to go and answer the door. Because you're afraid they're going to try to sell you something. You're afraid they're going to tie up your time. So you try to pretend you're not home. But what we as the church have to remember is that when the door is being knocked on, it's being knocked on by the one who loves us greater than anything. And that's Christ Jesus. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Yeah, we could talk about evangelism. You've probably heard the evangelism twist. Man, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. That's not what he's, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to the church. Because the church has shut the door on him. Because the church has closed him to the outside. He's knocking on the door because he says, I've got something for you. So we've got to answer the door to know what Jesus is trying to do. But it's not just enough to go and open the door. Because, you know, you can go and you can answer the door and you can kind of peek. See, some of you got storm doors on your front door. So that way you can open the door all the way, but you still got a barrier to the person on the outside. You'd be like, ah, yep, sorry, I'm good. You know, I, I, I've already know Jesus. I already got a church. I don't, I'm on a diet. I don't need your Girl Scout cookies. Whatever it is that they're trying to sell you, you know, I, I've already got a magazine. I don't know that. You, you can shut the door, right? Or you just kind of open a little bit so you can peek out and just tell them. So you can answer the door without really engaging who's there, right? But Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him. You can't just open the doors. You've got to accept the fellowship. You've got to accept the fellowship of Christ Jesus. We're talking about being hot or cold, right? 
my coffee cup's been sitting over here for 30 minutes now. It's probably lost its heat, don't you think? Man, that's some good room temperature coffee right there. Babe, we're about to get rich. I'm going to start selling this stuff. See me afterwards. I'll give you a taste, you know, a free taste right here. See, the point of fellowship with Christ is to continue applying the heat. But we do everything we can to try to keep the heat ourselves, right? We'll get a Yeti, right? This is a vacuum-sealed, stainless steel, $30 coffee cup. Was it 30 or is it 25? Braden, my oldest son that brought me the cup of coffee over here, decided years ago um, that for my birthday or for Father's Day or for Christmas, he needed to buy me a coffee cup. So this was a birthday present from Braden in 2016. So... um, Braden, you're upstairs. Thank you, buddy. I got a coffee cup. See, the thing about a Yeti is it'll keep your coffee hot for a while, right? Or if you put an ice drink in there, it'll keep it nice and cold. The coffee that went in here was really, really hot Thursday when I made it. But sitting on top of the filing cabinet in my office for the last three days and then in here for the last two hours, it's lost its heat. And I can think of no better explanation of what's happened in the church than this coffee cup right here. The gospel went in and it was burning hot. And so we did what we know how to do. We insulated it. We put four walls and pews around it so we could come in and we could sit with it. And little by little, the heat left. The only way to keep what's hot in here hot is to continue adding heat to it, to continue putting it to the fire. And that's why Jesus says, I will come in and I will dine with him because Jesus is more interested in carrying you through everything than letting you sit and grow cold, grow lukewarm. Because Jesus says, I loved you enough to die for you that I want to walk in the depths of life with you. And so when we accept the fellowship, we're allowing him to come and continue to bring the heat to our lives. And guess what? Sometimes that's going to be ugly. Because when Jesus brings the heat, notice he said, come and buy gold from me that is pure. You know how gold gets to be pure? It's melted. It's exposed to extreme heat. So all the impurities can be skimmed off the top. So that what we get from Christ is the best quality, the purest. And when he comes into our lives, when he comes and dines with us, when we have this continued fellowship with him, because we haven't shut him out, he's continuing to to add heat. So it doesn't matter what the insulation's like out here. It matters what goes on on the inside. I'm going to be honest with you. This coffee's gross. It's gross because it's been sitting here in this cup, in this insulation, and lost all its function. Has our church. This gospel that's so beautiful. The sacrifice of Christ that's so wonderful. 
this joy that we want to sing about and talk about? Has we, have we just sat in this insulating environment and allowed all the heat to rise up to where we're no longer moved by what he has offered? And will people come into the doors and will people come and sit in the pews and will they taste of what we're offering and say, "Mm mm-mm, that's been sitting too long. Mm Mm-mm. It's kind of gross. Ugh, it's got something growing on top of it. Or will it say, you know what? This has been made fresh and made fresh and made fresh because Christ Jesus is here. We also have to adopt the victory. Notice he says in verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him the ability. I will allow him to sit down with me on my throne. You know who sits on a throne? The king. Sometimes the imposter tries to, right? But the beautiful thing is this king on this throne has cast out all the imposters, has won the eternal victory. And he says, you will reign with me. You will sit with me on my throne. You have victory, but you've got to overcome to get there. Because he's like he says, just as I also overcame. See, this is the beauty of Christ Jesus. He knows where you sit. He knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. Why? Because he took on your flesh. He walked on this earth that he made. He emptied himself of all the power and all the glory of heaven, took on our flesh, walked in our life, did so sinlessly, and allowed himself to be hung on a cross and die for us. Why? So that he could show the power of the cross, the power of the gospel, the power of God when he was raised from the dead to offer us everlasting and eternal life. That is the fire. That is the heat. That is what comes in. And when he has fellowship with us, that is what changes us. That's what keeps us burning. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us from growing stale and cold and lukewarm and tepid and gross and induce vomiting. We've got to adopt the victory. And we do so by adhering to the Holy Spirit. He ends the chapter the same way he has every one. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit is the one that God sends. When you were saved, when you believed in Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. Now, you've got a choice. You can either listen to the Holy Spirit or you can adhere to his direction. And a church that adheres to his direction keeps that door open for Christ Jesus to walk in, to come in, to sit down, to die. When we adhere to the Holy Spirit, we're not saying, oh, what do we do now? We're saying, this is what God has shown us to do. And we move forward with power. We move forward with victory. We move forward with hope. We move forward with assurance that Christ is in us and leading us and directing us and so we're left with one question we've talked about what happened in the church we've talked about what we do now but here's the question that you've got to ask yourself am I hot or am I cold see this church in Laodicea didn't grow cold and lukewarm didn't grow lukewarm because of one guy but because of the collective one guy See, our church can grow cold because of any one of us. So we have to ask ourselves the question, am I hot or am I cold? 
Am I allowing the gospel to continue fan a flame of passion and desire and, and, and joy within me? Or, or, or am I just going through the motions? Is there really anything distinctly different between me? And, oh man, this is a tough question. Is there any difference between me and the way I do things and the way my lost neighbor does? Is, is there anything that distinguishes me from the person across the street that doesn't know the gospel? Is, is there anything in my manner of living that is different from the atheist, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the false teacher? Am I hot or am I cold? Maybe this morning as you're listening, you're thinking, you know, one time, one time I had such a passion, such a joy for the gospel, for what Jesus did in my life, but man, I've sat on a pew too long. I've gone to too many church services as a spectator. I've gone to too many worship gatherings for what I will get out of it and, and not enough of, God, what are you gonna do with me because of this? Am I hot or am I cold? I've grown lukewarm and Jesus is looking at me and I can feel his eyes peering into my heart and saying, you need to do something with what I've given you because you have grown cold. Guess what? It's not too late. It's not too late. Because the gospel is made readily available to you. Jesus comes to the Laodicea and says, come back because I love you. Maybe you can be warmed right now by the love of Christ that will fade into flame of fire by the power of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the gospel.